G'day and welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. My name is Jeremy Count and I'm your host and you are listening to the premier podcast about property. See, this is where you'll learn exactly how the property market works, what drives land and property prices and how prices can be affected. These are the lessons that we can learn from the guests on PAFO. See, it's all about the five drivers that affect property prices. So why does property become more valuable? Why can property prices continue to rise? And how is it that unaffordable property can continue to rise in value and become even less and less affordable? These can be mind-boggling questions, especially when we view them through the wrong parameters. See, property, or more specifically land, has five underlying drivers. Infrastructure, technology, population, credit, and of course, government-granted licenses. And the quicker we can come to recognize these drivers, the quicker we can start to answer these mind-boggling questions. So we can look back as far as we want through history and we can see the drivers in action, manipulating the desirability of different locations. History shows us that the more desirable a location, the fiercer the battle that occurs to control it. Nowadays, these battles, of course, take place in a financial sense. As in today's society, the more desirable a location, the greater the price will be paid. The old land barons called it location, location, location. We, of course, call it the five essential drivers for property, as these drivers will dictate the desirability of any location. And this episode is all about helping you understand the takeaways from some of our guests. And there's no better conversation to start with than the one I had with entrepreneur, innovator, and startup expert, Luke Howes. See, we are living through a period of prodigious technological advancements, where companies are revolutionizing commerce, the financial and banking section as we know it. Banking is moving very fast, and Luke has lived through this via his fintech company, Bank Statements, where he provides us a glimpse as to how fast technology can move and the productivity gains it can create. As an investor, we must be aware of the changing investment environment. The rise of the fintechs and the nanobanks are changing the banking landscape forever. And this conversation is a great example showing how far we've come technologically. This story is all about technology and the way in which credit is being created is changing. Technology is a major driver of productivity, and Luke has lived and breathed through the growth and adaptation of these innovative technological companies, which have had and will continue to have a profound impact on the property markets. See, this episode is about preparing ourselves for the future. It's allowing us to peer into the future and envisage technology as a driver in action. With the convergence of the new open banking regulations and the development of supercomputers, personally, I can see this concept being taken much, much further with algorithms and AR assessing loans in the not-too-distant future. And this circumstance sets up the near-perfect storm as we come towards the end of the credit cycle in years to come, ready for a bust. And we need to be aware of this as a possibility as we continue to monitor the changes to the credit markets. Technology is an enabler, and it's having a major impact as to how easily credit is created. Banking and the creation of credit is a major driver of property prices. The greater the availability of credit, the greater the speculative boom. And keep these things in mind when we have a listen to what Luke had to say. Can you start by describing what exactly is the fintech industry? It's an industry that is all about introducing technology to financial services, to finances. And so that's where the word comes from, isn't it? Fintech, it's finance and technology. 
And so really it's all about creating change. It may be disruption, innovation, um, but there's a better way to do things in financial services through technology. And so a lot of that is around better processes. It may be eliminating paperwork or manual processes or introducing completely new services or, or ways of working. Can you describe some of the amazing you know, advancements? Because you know, advancements don't just come about with, you know, someone has an idea and then, um, you know, you're able to just produce it. Like you couldn't, like Facebook couldn't just come about because someone had the idea of Facebook. You know, Mark Zuckerberg sat in that room and came up with the idea. There had to be a whole lot of other technological innovations that occurred before that and then converge at that point in time to enable uh, Facebook to come alive. Uh, so maybe you'll start on the credit side of things because that is where we spent the last seven years and our products, bank statements or proviso was in that space. And so our the tools that we built were automatically logging into someone's bank account with their permission to extract all their element bank statement information. So if you go back 10 or 15 years before that, um, internet banking needed to be invented and needed to exist in mm. order to be able to extract that automatically. And then you had to have the right data in there and people had to be familiar with transacting electronically. So that's all the stuff we take for granted now because we've all been doing it for 20, 25 years, interacting online. But that was the precursor to being able to provide um, services that can automatically retrieve some of that data that sits in your online banking. Then once you can get the data out, uh, that's great because it saves one one area of friction in retrieving bank statement information to give it to your broker or your bank or your lender. But then we've also seen workflow management tools that a number of brokers use. Uh, and there's a lot of great ones in the market like Sales Trekker and EasyDocs and FileInvite that mortgage brokers and their clients use, which allow people to collate their information far, far easier. And so that's just another incremental improvement that then ties into a bank statement service that we have. And then you have technological innovations for the lenders so that they can get all this information in and assess it much quicker. And they start dealing rather than with assessors looking at paper files on a desk, they start to have uh, systems that work with algorithms and use raw data like XML feeds of the bank statement information so that they can then decision. And so you decision far quicker. So you're getting a decision in an hour or two hours rather than in two or three days because somebody's having to go through a pile of paperwork. And then for cash to be dispersed uh, in a lending scenario, we're now seeing uh, so real-time payments being made. The national payments uh, platform has been rolled out over the last few years and we'll see a lot more innovation in that space in the coming years so that we can transact money far easier uh, in, a, in a seamless immediate way rather than waiting one to two days for a, for a transfer from bank to bank. Um, so this is just one little area of the market that impacts property but you probably have 15 or 20 different drivers and different companies and technologies all just looking at different aspects of that value chain so your timing was pretty good with bank statements, um, wasn't it? Um, you yep. were one of the first um, and certainly one of the um, most successful in that, uh, in that space of being able to collect uh, personal data, um, you know, from, from uh, customers, um, you know, obviously with their, with their say-so and the like. Um, you know, where did that idea 
you know, well, actually maybe do you want to describe a little bit more, you know, with regards to what the business was about? Who who were your customers and and what was the idea behind it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the timing was very fortunate in the space we were in. Uh, we didn't actually start out looking to build a bank statement provider. So I think that was one of the things that the market told us that the timing was right for this sort of product. And I'll explain what I mean, because we had been in the financial services industry with a comparison website, and we we wanted to do something that leveraged more of our technical technical capabilities that we had in-house. So I founded that company with my brother, Dallin, and he's very good technically. And so we're looking at building a product that was more technical in nature and where we could nurture more relationships with our customers. And so we looked at building a budgeting app. And so we had a very basic prototype of that budgeting app where at the time there was nothing in Australia where you could get data feeds in from all your different bank providers and maybe your super accounts and show it all in one place on one app. This had been done in the States with mint.com and it had been very successful over there. And so we were thinking in that sort of space. And I went and showed an early prototype to a couple of lenders who I knew. And one of them said, oh, that's interesting, but our biggest bottleneck is getting bank statements from clients in an online environment. Can your technology help with that? And so instantly I was reminded of that talk by the venture capitalist about friction. And I thought bottleneck, well, there's a real, there's a friction problem for this lender. Is this a problem that's encountered by other lenders as well? And I found that there'd been some legislative changes with responsible lending, that there was being more weight put on supporting documentation like bank statements. And so for online lenders and anyone who was trying to provide a digital experience, this problem was really emerging. Um, and so this was, I think this was part of the timing piece. We didn't have that insight when we were asking around, but then the market gave us that insight and gave us that feedback that uh, there was a real problem they had with retrieving bank data in an automated online environment. And so we, we started looking into that and uh, it, took us, it took us a couple of months but then we saw there was an American provider doing it, but not really in this lending space so much. And so we set out to be the fastest company at retrieving the data and being very Australian focused. So we focused on what Australian lenders needed and that ended up becoming brokers later on. But our, our early market was with lenders online. So they might've been doing small or medium or even large personal loans where people wanted money quickly. This wasn't a mortgage where you knew it was gonna take three or four weeks for the process from start to finish. This was somebody needed 10 to $20,000 because they needed to buy a car or 3000 bucks because they needed some cash for a holiday or something else. And so this was fast turnaround money. And so these lenders wanted tools that enabled the customer to apply quickly but also allowed the lender to assess the loan quickly and also make better lending decisions. And this data we were getting, we were able to categorize it and say, well, this is Jeremy's wage. This is how much he pays on his mortgage each month. Um, this is how much he spends on pet food. And so he gambles a little bit and, and all of this intelligent data that we could give to the lenders to help them make much quicker decisions than having an assessor look through things manually. So the timing was fortunate for us, um, but it was one where it was really just probably the tip of the iceberg when it came to responsible lending and digital transformation that we were really fortunate. And so we started working with these lenders. And then after a year, we had brokers who came to us and said, 
oh, we need to collect bank statements. Can you get bank statements for brokers? And we needed to get a few extra pieces of documentation and official bank documents. And so then brokers started using us. So we had hundreds of brokers start to use us. And after five or six years, it ended up being six or 7,000 brokers and about 15 or 16 banks that used us then for their internal credit decisioning. So it started at a, a niche part in the market, but then expanded across the market as more and more players saw utility in what we were providing. As both your business matured and, and the market matured, um, you, you know, continually gained traction, but how was the, to the product itself, but how did the attitude towards tech change over that time? I think some people had been, had a quite negative view of tech uh, at around that 2013, 2014 stage. Uh, because software and software as a service had been around for a number of years, but was starting to emerge in property and, uh, and in credit and in lending. And so a lot of the lenders and customers we were speaking to didn't have a lot of software as service products that were cloud-based from the past. But I think as we and others started to come into the market and people had a good experience with it and realized, oh, we don't have to build everything ourselves or we don't have to rely on off-the-shelf software which doesn't really meet our needs exactly we can get a, a SaaS service that's cloud-based there's ongoing improvements um, and benefits to the product and i can give feedback and that feedback actually goes into the roadmap and impacts the sort of software we'll use in the future i think people got really excited by this and and since then we've seen well the whole industry and most industries have started to be infiltrated by software as a service products uh, where it's all cloud-based and and really there's a, a keen keen focus on the customer and making sure the customer has an amazing experience because the customer has choice in the market now and you don't want your customers leaving so you need to keep them happy so i think there's been over that period there's just been a, a really strong growth in confidence from everyone in the market that software can work and can really uh, change a business and make it far more profitable and efficient so where do you think the biggest, where do you think the fintechs will make the biggest impact? Will it be at um, the, the banking level, the credit level? Will it be to businesses, merchants, consumers, um, you know, in the home loan market? Where, where do you think that the real, where they're likely to really make an impact? Uh, I don't mean to sit on the fence, but I, I really think there's opportunity everywhere in the finance space. And it's... Uh, where you look at big markets where there's lots of money involved, then there's always going to be people chasing something in that market. And you hope that there's also opportunity for innovation and the opportunity to really get a five to 10 times improvement on whatever the status quo is. And I think when you start to get five to 10 times improvement on the status quo, that's when there's a big impact. And if you look at products like Afterpay and, and Zip, uh, consumers have felt like those are amazing outcomes, way better than what they had before, preserves their cash a bit extra. Uh, they, can, they can split up payments. And so customers just love those products. And so I don't think any of us five years ago would have said there's a really big market for a sort of a lay-by product where you pay it over four installments. But yet they've come in, they've tested the market and they've created brands that people love. So I think there's lots of areas that are still going to be disrupted, that are going to be changed, others that will just incrementally be adapt over time or be innovated over time. 
but that definitely mortgages, like you say, I think there's probably a lot of change to come in, in property and how we deal with that. I think foreign exchange, I think how, how records are kept and credit bureaus are managed and run, credit decisioning, everything can get faster and more efficient. There's still stacks of room to go in there in all of those areas. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty excited about all of those spaces actually, Jeremy, and really interested mm. just to see the ideas that people come up with. And I think the best people to have those ideas are often people who do work inside of banks or financial institutions or customers who face the problem because those are the people who face the friction and face the bottlenecks day in and day out. And those are the people that need to say, this isn't right, this could be done better and I'm going to do something about it rather than just putting up with the, the friction or the nonsense that goes on every day. I was going to say, give you a bit of a segue into your, you know, what you're doing at the moment as well there, because you are a, um, a very giving sort of guy. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm at the moment working on the board of the Childhood Cancer Association based in Adelaide. So they're a South Australian organisation supporting families of children who have cancer. And so... My son had cancer when he was five. So it's an organization that's been a, a really great support to our family. So his, a lot of his initial treatments happened when we we're in Sydney at the Westmead Hospital. Uh, but then when we moved back to Adelaide, um, they've supported us in a number of ways. And Chris Hartley, who's the president of that association, uh, I worked for him about 20 years ago in my first job out of uni when I worked at Vodafone. And then he came and worked it for me and with us and the team at Proviso and Bank Statements as well. So it's it's been a, a good relationship I've had with Chris and joined the board there about six months ago, uh, which is great. And it has been just a good exposure in trying to do what we can to, to help people who are going through a really tough time. And you realize when diseases like cancer and anything else really hits, it doesn't discriminate between um, ethnicity or rich or poor or anything. You'd see that when you're sitting in the cancer ward waiting for treatment that people yeah. from every walk of life are hit by hit by things like this. That they're not expecting. So um, we had a really fortunate outcome. My son's 12 now. He's doing fantastically well. He's healthy and active. Uh, but yeah, definitely want to be part of supporting people through that journey. Omar Mojali from Examine Property is a property expert. As the founding owner of a research-based property company that helps investors source quality properties for their specific goals and objectives, he has literally evaluated tens of thousands of properties. And also he's observed the actions of many thousands of investors. As an investor himself, he understands the pitfalls that we face, so there's many learnings that we can take away from our discussion with Omar. So it's important to learn from other people's mistakes, because not everyone has a great property investment journey. There's many tales of tears and financial destructions, yet others make fortunes from the same asset class. See, we need to learn from experts, learn from others' mistakes because it can save us an awful lot of money to make sure we get quality advice from knowledgeable professionals and not barbecue-based advice. Emotion can have a huge impact on an investor's decision-making process and confirmation bias is horrendously destructive. Property investing can be an exciting journey, so let's put our best foot forward and think about what we can learn from our discussion with Omar. Omar, you are the owner and uh, principal of Examine Property, a research-based property and investment firm. 
And this puts you in a really uh, powerful position that you not only get to invest yourself, but you also get to see uh, and and integrate um, with a lot of other investors. And so you get to see both sides of the story. You get to see, you know, the, the transition that people make putting their portfolios together. And I wanted to kick it off by asking you, what is the biggest mistake that investors make when they come to property? Um, oh, the biggest mistake probably... Um not getting good advice, I'd say, um, whether it's through uh, a buyer's agent or someone, um, a vendor's agent, just um, getting really poor advice um, onto, you know, in regards to what they're buying and um, whether it's the right fit and right type of property that they should be buying for their individual circumstances. Part of the whole purpose of this podcast is that, is to, to you know, let people or show people that at the end of the day, we all have an affiliation to property. We touch and feel it. We live with it every day. We think that we understand it. And yet there's a lot of things about property that, um, uh, you know, that, that we just don't understand, aren't there? And it's a very emotive asset um, that we often make, you know, quite poor decisions when it comes to property investments. Uh, definitely. And also the, usually the people you're talking to, um, when it comes to investment, don't understand um, what makes a good investment property, what works, um, where to buy, what to buy, when to buy. There's no real qualifications um, in terms of uh, you know property investment advice. Um, and then people also sort of mix it up um, where you know comparing it to the types of property they live in and what they look for when they're looking for an owner-occupied uh, property. It's a lot of different fundamentals that you need to consider when it comes to investment. So what is it then, Omar, that separates investors who can accumulate large portfolios to those who can't? Is it, you know, is it based around their income or the fact that those who have large portfolios inherit a lot of money? Um, is it investor psychology? Um, you know, people just want to take action. Um, they're risk takers. Um, you know, what is it that stops people? Because I saw this very interesting statistic that, that showed that it was less than 2% um, of property investors actually get to four or more properties, which I found absolutely astounding. I think there's a variety of factors um, in that, um, Jeremy. It's uh, like income is important, but it's not the be all uh, end all. Um, I've heard of and known people that were just on sort of basic, um, salaries that immigrated from overseas and slowly over time accumulated a fairly large portfolio on not too significant income. And then you've got other people that earn maybe a million dollars a year that are partners in law firms that you know, have the boats and the yachts and the expensive toys and, and never even get to own and, and occupy a property, let alone uh, investments, always highly leveraged spending. Um, so it's more what, what you do with the money rather than um, purely just the amount of money you earn. And it also shows too that um, despite what um, any projected growth is put in front of you, that um, you know property like any other asset doesn't move in a linear fashion. Um, no. That there are ups and downs. There's times when a really good property can sit um, flat uh, and not move, and then all of a sudden it can move very quickly. Um, you know, making up time pretty quickly, can't it? Definitely, it can uh, rocket. And I remember my property within sort of three, three, four years, it doubled in value um, very quickly. So it doesn't move in a linear fashion and it 
came back, it was worth probably 550 at one stage, came back down to sort of the 400 mark. Um, so yeah, you have years of no growth. You've had, you have years of significant growth and you have um, years when it pulls back, but over the long term, generally, um, now obviously most good areas, um, you know, it'd be doubling at least every sort of 10 years. Was property a subject that, um, uh, the Mojali spoke about over the kitchen table at dinner? Yeah, look, my parents were very intelligent, obviously um, sort of migrated here, had to escape a civil war. So they didn't have the opportunity to go to university and, and whatnot. But my dad, um, like all ethnics, it's all about like the Greeks and the, the Italians that came and, and now a lot of the people coming from Asia and the subcontinent, it's all, they're very property centric. Um, that makes a lot of sense though, that, when, you, when you're escaping a civil war, to be able to own and, um, you know, touch and feel the dirt to give security. Um, you know, I, I can understand, you know, why there's such a, a drive to own, um, to own their own piece of land. It's cultural in terms of the way they live. So you grow up in a village, you know, you all, you know, your brothers and sisters all live and generally you live with the grandparents and then your parents get a piece of their property or they build on the same land next to them. Yes. And it's just that intergenerational sort of, um, some of it's transfer, obviously the lazy ones don't go out and buy their own, but um, you find that's what happens. And anytime you're selling a property overseas, it's always someone from the village's son that, that wants to buy it. So um, they just see that transition through the generations um, of property and very property um, centric um, as well, especially in, um, those that come from sort of the, the village areas, some of the city dwellers obviously live in apartments and, you know, it's a lot of them rent and um, not, a, not as much um, centric around property, but people from the villages and the farms and sort of the rural regional areas um, overseas that, that come in definitely have a massive affiliation um, to property. And a lot of them I find, like my dad helped me, I had no deposit. So he put the house up as security, made me do it and, Within 12 months, I you know, was paying the house off. I paid off my credit card. I paid off my personal loan and, and started to accumulate for my next property investment. And that sort of cultural forcing, you're buying the house. And he was at the auction and hitting me in the ribs and bid. Yeah. And there was another <laughs> yeah, bloke bidding against me. And, and my mum was he having was a heart attack. Oh, and <laughs> stop, stop. And my dad's like, nah, whatever it's worth to him, it's worth to us more because it's behind us. And one day we'll build townhouses and one day we'll do this. And and 20 years later, I still can't build townhouses. Still can't do that. <laughs> but um, it was the best thing he ever did. And yeah, my dad, like he passed away about a year later, but he went in there, he repainted it for me. Um you know, sanded the floorboards with me, got it ready to rent, you know, did all the maintenance and and my uncle came in, my mum's brother and tiled it for me. And, you know, we sort of patched up the kitchen and changed a few things and just got it ready for rent. So that was it's not a just, great family it wasn't just exercise a, the renovation, isn't it? I've I've really oh, enjoyed that. I look back <laughs> at um um I don't know whether I'd quite want to do it myself now, but at the same sort of yeah. age as yourself, um you know, renovating houses and mum and dad coming and helping, mum painting and, you know, dad helping me doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's a great... It's good. Yeah, it's a great, you know, bonding sort of a, a session, isn't it? It's it, it's a lot of fun. What would you say is um, the most crucial element that of that secret sauce? 
the most crucial element is what you is um, is having something aside to invest, um, not spending all, all your money. Um, like when I was a young accountant, like I said, I not not one dollar. I was just living beyond my means, and I had a great salary at the time for someone my age. Um, so saving money, learning about the power of compounding. Um, so that's very important. Um, I remember when I was working at Medfin, which is part of the NAB, and one of the directors, he gave me the, the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. Great um, book. And I, I love that book. Fantastic. And that's the secret. The Richest Man in Babylon is the secret. So you, you save part of your salary, like super, the government's enforcing it on you. Yeah. You invest it, you reinvest the earnings. The more you save, the more money you make. So if you save 10%, you're going to be X amount wealthy. If you can do 15, it, yeah, you'll be, be a lot, lot better off. Yeah. Yeah. So just that, that, the discipline that comes along with that. Um, and um, just taking control, like learning. Um, you don't have to do it all yourself, but it, it's good to understand what's going on um, and, and how things work and, and, um, you know, how to maximize your returns um, for the least amount of risk. But from a business point of view, can you explain some of the pitfalls and some of the steps you take in your due diligence process when deciding whether an investment, um, whether a property meets an investment grade for you or not? Um, so on a, on a micro level, on the actual um, sort of Well, you property, can go either way um, here because there's a lot. I, mean, I know it's a very big question. We probably could have spent the entire podcast talking about this and, and maybe we might go into it a little bit deeper later on uh, in another episode. But um, you may start maybe with the macro because, I mean, the macro is as important as the micro in a lot of ways, isn't it? Uh, definitely. And that's something that I've personally um, learnt through being exposed to the 18-year cycle from um, yourself, Jeremy. So, um that's where it starts for me. And, and that's something that was lacking in our business in my understanding and my, um, you know, education about the, the property market, the economy, um, the stock market uh, previously. So I've always been good at picking, you know, good quality suburbs, good quality property, doing all the due diligence on that level. Um, but um, overlaying it with the macro is really, I think, taken our business and our service offering to another level. So to me, it starts with the macro, like what works, um, when, where um, should, should you be buying? So you know, you've got a, yeah, let's just stick to Australia um, because that's what, you know, what we, what we understand, but also there's no reason not to invest in Australia. We've had a long period of economic prosperity. So of developed countries out, we've had the best performing property market since 1975 um, of the developed world. So, so there's no reason not to look at Australia. Then look at it, why has that happened? And then looking at, you know, are we going to have that same economic prosperity moving forward? So, and then which areas are going to benefit from that economic prosperity? And to me, where do people want to live? Where's the, the jobs? And most of the jobs are in the service economy. They're generally based in, in the capital cities. The capital cities are growing quicker than the rest of Australia. So people are accumulating more and more in the capital cities. Um, so you've got good demand. You've got um, an educated quality workforce in diversified economies, working in multiple industries. And then I start to look at, you know, where each city is um, in its cycle. Obviously we favor 
the larger cities because um, they're growing better long-term. And then we look at timing for that, for that market. And then once I've selected, say, okay, we're going to focus on Perth or we're going to focus on Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or wherever it is. And then we look at, you know, where do, where are the jobs? Where do people work? Um, where's the best infrastructure? Where are the universities? Where are the schools? And most of the time that's generally closer to the CBD, um, you know, within reasonable commuting proximity. So that inner to middle, middle ring. Um, and then it's about um, looking at the better quality um, suburbs, quality demographics. You want people on, you know, if I gave you a suburb, you know, with people with very high incomes, very highly educated, you're going to have good quality tenants. They're going to be in safe, secure jobs, earning good, good money so they can pay you the rent, but also, you know, they'll want to buy that property off you um, in the future. So you're getting um, great demand from high income earners in that area. And then you look at, um, you could have a cracking suburb and this is the mistake that, well, you know, we've sort of made in the past. Um, there's just been a bit too much supply in that area. So long term, it's not going to make a major difference, but over the short to medium term, it could impact um, your capital growth compared to other suburbs that are similar level without that, without that supply. So, um, you know, supply and demand is, is very um, important to look at. As well, when evaluating um, an investment opportunity, what's the one resource that you use most often? Um, Australian Bureau of Statistics is probably the key, especially looking at something boring. new like a suburb or, or whatnot. Uh, it is, but it can tell you a lot about a suburb. So, um, yeah, looking at what people do, what incomes they earn, how many kids they have, how many cars they drive, um, what type of size property they prefer, um, you know, the industries, their education levels, um, ethnicity. Um, it gives you a lot of um, valuable information and it just gives me a good picture of um, the quality of the suburb, quality of the people that live there. Um, obviously, we, we travel up and or if it's interstate or if it's in Sydney, then generally sort of I know the areas. But, you know, I'll go there, sit at, sit at the cafe, sit at the bus stop, look at the quality of the um, of the people that you know live there and also the people that are coming into that area um, as well. So um, that's very important. If you've got a massive Westfields, it could be attracting a lot of petty crime and people from outside the suburb. So you, you might not want to live too close to that. Um, piece of infrastructure as well. So, um, yeah, very important to look at the, the demographics are, are key. You hinted earlier um, with regards to, um, you know, starting to understand or, or you, you know, coming across the, the, the property cycle and the drivers. Um, over the span of you know, 20 odd years that you've been involved in the property market. Um, what are the most significant things that have impacted on your philosophy? I think as an investor, the first 10 years, it was just what I experienced myself um, and saw opportunities missed, um, that that type of information. Um, to, like I, I'm not just saying this because Count Flack is very, you know, involved in the 18 years, but that's been the biggest eye opener for me. Um, uh, over the last sort of 20 years. And I wish I knew, not just in terms of the cycle, but I definitely wish I knew that 18 years ago. Um, I, you know, I wish I knew about the power of compounding, you know, 25 years ago and, and yeah, 20 years ago. So um, 
everything I know now, I wish I knew before. But the the main thing I wish I knew from the from the start is a, is about the the cycle and the market and how predictable um, it is, and the importance of buying when the market's cheap, like when the opportunity to buy is uh, versus buying when everyone else is generally buying, which is ninety nine percent of the time the peak of the market. So, yeah, to me that's the most important thing. And, and you know, Jeremy, I had a business partner in this when we started this business nine years ago. They were exposed to the cycle, same as me, but, and to this day still don't believe in it, take an interest in it, um, utilise it to assist their clients. So, um, yeah, that's the biggest thing for me. From Luke and his technology angle impacting the creation of credit to Omar and investment mistakes, there's a lot to think about when it comes to property. But whatever you do, always remember the five underlying drivers of property prices when listening to PATHO. Infrastructure, technology, population, credit, and government-granted licenses. Understand these because these are where the best learnings will come from. And this is how, as investors, we can learn to make better investment decisions. This is how we can turbocharge our investment returns. The conversations you'll hear on this podcast, PATHO, are jam-packed with examples of the drivers in actions. Understanding how these drivers will impact property prices will give you an unfair advantage as a property investor. Learning how to spot these drivers before they manifest into property prices will make you an absolute fortune. Of course, if you've got any questions, queries, or you'd like any help, then feel free to get in contact with us. We'd love to help you on your property journey. Thanks for listening to me, and don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a review for Property, Australia's favourite obsession. I've been your host, Jeremy Cownan, and until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Jeremy Cowan and Cowan and Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, history and past performance do not guarantee future performance.